Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. And this is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope. And tonight's guest is Chris Sullivan. You may remember that name from the New England Patriots. That is the Chris Sullivan that we are interviewing tonight for the show. Welcome, Chris. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. We really appreciate you taking the time. And I understand you do take the time because you go out and talk to, at different high schools and various different um, establishments with your story. So we'd like to hear that story. I know we'll start you off with a as you were a football player for North Attleboro High School. And um, where does North Attleboro come up with all these athletes? I'm amazed every year because I follow, you know, sports or high school sports. Mm-hmm. And every year, North Attleboro always seems to be very competitive. Um, well, you know, it's, you know, it's interesting about that. It's, it's, the, they have a good pop warner and it's very popular, at least in football. But it's like the kids get into it early, and it's very popular in town, and and, and that's what it is. Some towns, the, you know, the, the Pop Warner or the, the kids' programs aren't as popular, you know, and they, they get less kids, you know. But North Adams has always been like – Especially in football, they're not, they're not, they don't have the best players all the time, but they're always good because so many kids go up for Pop Warner and start playing football when they're seven, eight, nine years old. Wow. So you played for the high school team. Mm-hmm. You also played, uh, what was I, I saw you played baseball and, and basketball, right? But I did baseball and basketball up through like ninth grade. Then I switched to track. So I did football, basketball, and track in high school. And was it? I really didn't. I really can't call it much of being tracked when I just threw a shot put in a discus, but I was pretty good at it. Oh yeah. Okay. I'm just curious. My uh, my my brother-in-law threw 155 feet in high school. How does that compare? Is that, is that a I, good number? You know, yeah. I with the the discus. I threw the shot put 58, 59, and the discus like 160, 160, I think. I oh, yeah. Know. Some kid just beat my um, – I had the school record until a few years ago, and a kid beat it. But, oh. but okay. if I had what kids had nowadays as far as the lifting programs and the weight limit, the weight lifting and the programs and nutrition, it's like totally different. Like I during basketball season, I didn't lift a weight. You know, I just walked on, just through the shot put without any, like, real strength. But these kids nowadays, it's amazing how big they're getting and strong they're getting. Well, you're fairly good size. I, I read on the script that when you played for the Patriots, you were 6'4 and 270. Yeah, I always I always kept my weight about 275. A lot of times in the program, they put down 285, and it was kind of a lie because every time I got weighed in, I drank two gallons of water before, and I put weights in my shorts so I didn't get in trouble. <laughs> but I, I was never someone that could carry like much more weight because it slowed me down. So the program always said 280, 285, but in reality, I was never above like 275. So, uh, And where did you go to college? Uh, Boston College. I actually have a sweatshirt on. Oh, yeah. I should have yeah, noticed I stayed, that. I stayed local. Yes. Okay. And so after college, you got drafted by the Patriots? Uh, yeah, 1996. I'm getting old, starting to lose my hair. But yeah, <laughs> I grew up, you know, I mean, North Adderall's five miles away from the stadium. So I, I know, I was going to say, you must be one of the the closest people who ever got, who ever played at the stadium as far as you didn't go very far. No. You went from no, North Attleboro to, to Boston College and then to, Closer to home. Gillette Stadium. So, I mean, that was pretty quick. It Um, was. And I actually lived at home my rookie year. I lived with my parents, which was great. I should have stayed there. And I had a couple of the older veterans say, don't leave. Because back then, they weren't the Patriots they are now. So, we didn't get breakfast and lunch and dinner and have chefs. You know, back then, when you walked in, they threw a toaster in the uh, mail room 
with and left some bagels out from Duncan, and that was the breakfast for the team back then. They didn't have wow. what they have now. So at home, I was getting, you know, I was getting breakfast, lunch, when dinner when I got home, my mother would make me eggs and French toast, and I was eating better than any of the other guys living at my parents' house. Yeah, so what was the salaries like back then? Um, my first year, I think the rookie minimum, I don't remember, was around 130. Now I think it's around 700. Wow. So it's gone up quite a bit. You know, back then, 130, I thought I was like the richest person in the world, 130,000 bucks, you know. That's a good amount of money for anybody, even for today's salaries. Yeah, I think that's yeah. Good. But in the NFL, yeah. it's 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 changed a lot, a lot. You know, which is good for the guys. So you played for the Patriots for up until the year 2000. Yep, 2000. You... I went out to Pittsburgh for a little while. Why for, did that happen? Uh, money. So the they want they wanted me to stay here but they wanted me to take minimum. And they 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 said they'd pay me later on to take care of me, but Pittsburgh offered me at the time a good amount of money. It's like five and a half million dollars. So it was like a no brainer, you know. I wanted to stay here. This is this was kind of my comfort zone. I had the family here, I had friends here. And in, in retrospect, I wish I stayed here, you know, cause kind of, you know, I'll talk, we'll talk about my story a little more later. Like going out to Pittsburgh probably wasn't the best decision. I had a couple things, a couple injuries creep up on me. And, and that's kind of where my life started to took a negative turn or I, you know, my, my choices and, and how I dealt with things kind of changed when I was out in Pittsburgh. So yeah, I went after the money, but probably not the best thing. So did you get you got injured in Pittsburgh? Uh yeah, my my very first camp, very first um day of practice, the conditioning test. Very first step I took, I I ruptured two discs in my back. And and I it had been a lifelong issue, back issues. It's hereditary, it's in my family, my father has issues and you know, but nothing major had happened and I had it MRIs throughout college and like I got by and like I said nothing but it, it's interesting like I was in the best shape of my life coming out of my stance not even taking a hit is when I injured my back you know and um yeah probably not a smart decision I hit it for the next five weeks which was really really bad idea you know and and did some nerve damage to my feet you know trying to be you know, not wanting to let the team down or they just give me all this money. So I, uh, yeah, my very first, my very first day out there, basically of the season, yeah, I, I blew out a couple of discs and, and it became a problem that I still kind of deal with to this day. You know, I still have oh, yeah. nerve damage in my left foot and, you know, things kind of spiraled around that time. I know I happen to have been in the same position. I still can't feel the ball of my right foot. I it's totally dead. <laughs> so really? I, oh yeah, I know. I had nerve damage coming from my L four and L five. Yeah. So same ones. yeah, and, so you I know, know it's and it's crazy because you know for me the back got better and I didn't notice that my left foot was working half as much as like. I, I got slower, like I had less explosion. I didn't really know why until probably six years ago, probably 15 years of, out of football is when I went to the doctor for a physical and he goes, what's wrong with your left foot? And I didn't know, like at the time when my career started to fall apart because of me slowing down and not being the same person I was, like at the time I didn't so much feel the nerve damage you know it's just the the nerve never healed and you know i i really never put two and two together but mine was similar it was l4 l5 you know yeah. and, and trying to be a tough guy and, and not let anyone know and play through it and 
you know, I'm wearing weight belts and, and the whole time I'm just doing more damage and more damage, you know, trying not to let other people down. You and know, you're a defensive, a li- you're a defensive lineman? Yes. Yeah. Tackle? All of them. So basically yeah. I played, that's why I kind of stuck around for a little while. And if I had stayed healthy, I would have played a little while longer because I could play end tackle, nose tackle. I could learn them all and, and, and I could play them all. And, but I wasn't a superstar, but I was good at each one. So they could put, you know, anybody that wanted to rest or get injured, they could just plug me in, you know. So so they had me down as a defensive end probably because of my size but a lot of the times I played tackle a lot of the times I played nose tackle sometimes and and you know a lot of times back then Willie McGinnis was hurt a lot which was not not nice but you know he was a speed guy so he was always pulling muscles popping hamstrings and and so I played a lot in his position which was a defensive end elephant position Okay. Yeah. So when did um, you see a doctor and somebody made some prescriptions for you? Um, you know what? It's it's funny because I never um, – I don't know if I was ever really pres- given a prescription for that. Like I had surgery for my back. It's – I could kind of go throughout – we'll have go through my story a little more go ahead. in a few minutes, but – um, I had had a few surgeries and I was prescribed pain pills and I didn't like the way they made me feel. You know what I mean? I slept. I remember like all the surgeries I had, I stayed at my parents' house and, and like for two days of taking the pain pills, like I didn't wake up. Like I stayed asleep. You know, when pain pills um, really kind of started affecting my life was when I didn't have football. And I didn't have structure in my life and I didn't have something to get back to and like all the stuff, like I had a lot of mental health struggles throughout my life that, that I kind of hid from anyone. And it was kind of like the perfect storm for me. Um, Mentally, I was in a bad place. Physically, I was in a bad place. I didn't have any structure in my life. Like football was taken away at the time. and, And that's when, um, I started buying pain pills that I noticed how they made me feel at that time. You know, I see. that's when things clicked. Like I had taken them after games, trainers had given them to me on the plane on the, you know, after games, flying home, you need a couple pain pills. I was given to them, you know, after surgeries. And, and the interesting part is because I was so structured and motivated and focused on what I was doing in football, like I, they didn't like have the same effect they had on me as when, when all those things that had kind of kept me in line were taken away. That's when, um, I, I, they truly took a different effect on, uh, on me. So you, you were in Pittsburgh, but then you went back to the Patriots 2001. Yes. Yeah, I was in, uh, so kind of what happened with me in Pittsburgh, I went out there, I got hurt. Um, I got hurt the very first day of camp. And five, six weeks later, I got back surgery. Two weeks after that, I started the season opener versus the Browns. And, and it's it was my decision to come back that quick. Looking back, like I, I, my biggest fear my whole life been letting other people down. Like I don't care so much about letting myself down. Like it's a whole different story. But I rushed back onto the field and I had a really bad year. You know, um, I had the nerve damage in my feet. I shouldn't have been back on the field. It wasn't something that the Steelers so much. It said you need to get back. It was my decision, but I had a really bad year. And I wasn't the same player, and I had slowed down a little bit, and, and coaches were getting on me pretty good, you know, because, you know, when you get up there to that level, you know, there's, it's a very, you know, there's a lot of pressure put on you, especially when they, they had given me some money, and, and, and I had a bad year, 
and and, and during that time, um, I I had always struggled with pretty severe anxiety, pretty severe depression, you know, self worth issues, and and for me at the time, I I, I turned to alcohol to cope with how I was what was going on during the day out in Pittsburgh, you know, and, and um, I didn't drink much in, in, in high school, college. I think at Boston college, I went to five parties over five years. I literally did football sleep in school, you know, and I graduating got into graduate school. So, you know, I, I, I stayed away from the alcohol because like, you know, I had so much structure in my life. But in Pittsburgh, when things were going in the wrong direction and, and I didn't know how to deal with that stuff and, and, and it was overwhelming to me, I turned to alcohol, you know, to cope with what was going on during the day, you know, and, and that year I got hurt, I started drinking pretty heavily. You know, most nights I wasn't getting wasted, but most nights I was having two or three drinks, you know, not beer. I, you know, I I drink some sort of hard alcohol you know, because it got me where I wanted to get quicker. And, um, and going into that summer, probably I was probably in the best shape of my life, but I was drinking a lot too. And I got in a motorcycle accident a month before my second camp out in Pittsburgh after having a few drinks, I just bought a new uh, motorcycle and, and, you know, I thought it was a good idea. I thought everyone wanted to see my motorcycle, which was just completely idiotic. But I went home, got it. On the way back, I got in a motorcycle accident. And um, should have gone to the hospital, didn't go to the hospital, broke my wrist. Um, and I knew there was something wrong with it. But I didn't want the team to know. So I let everything heal. I told my mother I, I wiped out on a mountain bike. And I don't think she believed that. I used to uh, mountain bike up. There's a ski slope. That's it's funny. Most of my life, I, I worked out up at the ski slope in North Attleboro. I just ran the hills, starting in like probably ninth grade, you know. So I told my mother I wiped out on a mountain bike and I hid the injury. I went to camp a month later, rebroke it because it started to heal. Hit it from the team for the next five weeks. And then finally went to the trainers and said, something wrong with my wrist. They x-rayed it and I had um, surgery the next day, you know, and um, I had surgery the next day. And I remember it was about two weeks after that, I went in the facility and uh, it was our first day off after camp, I think. And, um, and I went in and I was, I got on the treadmill and it's, a, it was an interesting point in my life because like, I knew the decisions I would make, I was making at the time were bad. Like I knew my life was starting to like bad things were like coming into my life and, and I was heading in the wrong direction. I remember going in on a day off going, I got to cut this stuff out. I got to put down the booze. I got to get back in shape. Like this isn't right. And the bad part of that day is the general manager came down. I got released by the Steelers that day. You know, and for me, I can remember sitting in the parking lot out in Pittsburgh, their practice facility. And I remember sitting there for like two or three hours. And like, for me, it's, I felt like the world like crashed in on me. Like sitting here today talking to you, it's like, shouldn't have been as big a deal as it was. You know, I had a college education. I needed like three more classes to get my master's degree. You know, I had a bunch of money. You know, I was going to play in the NFL again. Like, but, you know, for me at the time, like, I think it was kind of the first time, like, I felt like I had truly let people down or lived up to my expectations. And um, I kind of felt like the world uh, crashed in on me. And um, I moved back to Massachusetts. And, and, um, I shut down from basically the world. Like I, I, I started to self-medicate with alcohol to deal with how I was feeling, you know, and, and I started hanging out with people that I surrounded myself and I put myself in situations that probably weren't the best, you know, and, and I always tell people I, 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 I surrounded myself with people that weren't bad people, but they all felt like me. 
you know, and, and um, early 2001 is when I started buying pain pills. And um, I can remember it almost like it was yesterday, you know. Um, and like I said, I had had, I had taken them before, you know, and, and I, as far as I can remember, I never liked how they made me feel. You know, and, and I think at the time, because I was so focused on working out and, and football and doing the whatever I had to do that maybe I was in a different headspace. But like I had dreamt of feeling a certain way my whole life. Like I had always dreamt of just being comfortable in my own skin. I've never like until recently, I was never, when I was a kid, comfortable by myself. I've never been comfortable around people. I've never been comfortable talking to people. Like, I've isolated my whole life because of my dis my social discomfort and, and interacting with people and, and my anxiety and my social anxiety. And the thing I had dreamt about my, my whole life, I found it in those pain pills. And the scary part is that feeling lasted about 45 minutes. You know, and you can, it's the story of many people. Like I chased that 45 minute feeling for the next eight years, you know, and that's kind of where it, that part of my story began was, was um, just looking for comfort from, I just wanted something to take me out of me, you know, and at the time I was drinking, but then once I found the pain pills and, and that euphoric feeling, at least it gave me. Um, yeah, I, it was a different time too, because as, as you know, it's like my only um, interaction with pain pills back then was doctors and trainers, like people I trust. And, and it was, I think it was at the very beginning of this opiate epidemic or right before it, no one. And, and, you know, I didn't think they were bad. I didn't, you know, and I had heard people talk about the, you know, where it could bring people, but like, you know, never thought it would be me. I sat through some talks in high school, college, NFL, and, and I listened to the person, but um, I could never relate to the person for some reason, because I thought I was different. You know, I thought because I was successful and had done all these things and gone to college and graduated and had a certain type of parent and and I was a certain type of person, like that stuff doesn't affect me. You know, and and, and it's crazy. And 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 the sad part is like and I I say this in a lot of schools, like the craziest thing for me is like I could be anywhere in the country or the world and walk into a, a Alcoholics Anonymous or a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. And, and they're all kind of the same. Someone shares this story and then everyone else talks. And the crazy part for me is like, it doesn't matter where I'm at. When I walk in, most of the time they tell my story, you know, and it's people that, that good people, not nothing bad. You know, they just want to escape from something. And it's usually mental health, anxiety, depression, um, social issues or some sort of trauma. You know, and that's been such an eye-opening thing for me because, you know, up until I gave up substances, like, I thought I was nothing like the people that struggled with them. When in fact, like, I had everything in common. You know, but in early 2001, it's like, it looked like an aspirin. It looked like no big deal. Like, I'd never get hooked on this stuff, you know. And, and fortunate for me, I didn't have it in my family. You know, I didn't have friends that were struggling with it. You know, so like, I had an idea of what alcoholism was, but I had no idea of what addiction was. You know, because for me, I didn't have any firsthand knowledge. I didn't really listen to people that talked about it because like I had this image in my head I made up, you know, and I made up the image of someone that had struggled for years and that would never look like a football player or a college graduate or someone that came from a certain type of family, you know, and um, yeah, so in early 2001, when I started buying the pain pills, like 
I didn't know what I was getting into, you know, and, and, um, yeah, for the next eight years, they grabbed a hold of me, but three months after buying them, I got back on the Patriots, you know? Yeah. I wanted to hear, how did that happen? Yeah. So I, I picked up the pain pills and right around nine 11 and I was drinking a lot and taking pills, but the Steelers had given me an injury settlement. So I moved back to Massachusetts and they gave me a lot of money to sit on the couch. And, um, but I had teams calling me during that period. So I had the Patriots calling me, the Steelers calling me and the Eagles calling me. And, um, and they were saying, listen, when your wrist is healed, if we have any injuries, we're going to sign you up, you know, and, and, and looking back, like I was barely working out. Like I had never, I was someone that went to the gym 365 days a year since I was in eighth grade, like that insecurity and thinking other people are stronger than me, you know, but at the time it was more important to me, like to numb myself, you know? So at the time I was working out a little, but I was going out at night, you know, and, and I remember I used to justify it and say, you know, I didn't go to parties in college. Like I deserve this. Like I deserve to let loose. And, and I had teams calling me and I was taking the pain pills and I was, you know, drinking most nights and, uh, but I was still working out a little and in the, the Patriots called in October. I don't know if it was early or late October of 2001. And it was my, uh, one of my old coaches and, um, he said, can you come in for a workout? You know, and, and I went in there the next day at 6.30 in the morning. Um, and apparently I was in good enough shape or like they thought they knew me enough. You know, I got back on the team. You know, and then um, I was a different person back back then when I got back on the team. It's I, I never I never realized how much turnover there are there is on um, NFL teams until I went out to Pittsburgh. And when I came back and Belichick had come in, he got rid of a lot of people, you know, and, and before I knew everyone, when I came back, he had got rid of like half the team, you know, the same core was there, you know, but when I got back on the team, um, I was a different person too, you know, um, you know, I was, I was probably an addict and alcoholic at the time. Um, you know, I was taking pain pills pretty regularly and I was drinking most of the time. But, you know, I got back on the team and two months later, we won uh, the first Super Bowl. In the that's when, uh, Super Bowl. Yeah. That's when Tom Brady was introduced and started playing quarterback, right? Yeah, I came back right before, I don't know, right before Bledsoe got hurt. So I got back on the team. I don't know what week that was. I can't remember much about that. That's okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, yeah, right about then I got back on the team and um, yeah, we had a good run, you know. It's, so now uh, you've won the Super Bowl. You've got a Super Bowl ring. You've made some extra money, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. And now, a lot more now. I actually looked it up. We made quite a bit, you know, back, yeah. it was a lot back then, but. Um, yeah, I got a Super Bowl ring somewhere. We usually don't know where it is. Um, we don't know where it is now. No. At home somewhere. Yeah, it's at home somewhere. It, it's interesting because it's it was a it, it was kind of a pivotal, really pivotal point in my life. So like, I've never put it on my finger. Like I I'll carry it around and give it to the kids at schools, and I, it's not because I'm not proud of it. You know, initially, I was like, who would put that on their finger? Like, I don't want to do anything in my life to draw attention to me. So that's kind of how it started. At this point now, I'm superstitious. But it's, it's a point in my life where I see, like, for 28 years, I did the right thing. 98% of the time, like, I turned down parties and I turned down going out. And I always did extra. And I listened to my coaches and I listened to my teachers and I listened to my parents and I... And I did all the right things. Um, and, and kind of right when I got that ring, my life kind of went in a different direction. You know, so it it when I look at it, it's a lot of good. And then I'm like, ooh, you know, then then I took a, a bad turn. But, you know, it's um, 
majority of my life, I, I looked like I had it all together. You know, at a, at a very young age, thank God I found sports because for as long as I did it, 20 something years, that's the only thing that kept me from losing it. You know, and, and at a young age, I realized if I don't do anything wrong and I say yes, no, thank you, and I don't bring attention to myself, um, no one will question what's really going on inside. And, and like I said, it's a lot of insecurities, low self-esteem, low self-worth. I never thought I had good a good practice a day in my life. I didn't understand, like, why I started over other people. Like I parted my hair, I tucked my shirt in and and I did all the right things. So no one would like ask me like how I really felt. And inside it was fear and insecurities and doubts and, and anxiety yeah. and, and, and all those things, you know, and. I can and understand why the opioids were, were, um, took care of that for you and yeah. how it was. Um, something that you would thrive for because that creates all the in, the um, artificial endorphins, suppresses the natural ones. Yeah. So <clears throat> now you let the Patriots, you win the Super Bowl, but you don't go back to play next year, right? No, I, I actually had another year on the contract. So kind of what happened was I had another year on the contract. So the off season came and I was working out and I went through the mini camps and, um, you know, I was doing all that stuff, but I was still drinking heavily. I was still taking, and the pain pills just kept progressing and progressing. And in the night I got the ring, um, another guy jumped in the car with me. And at the time they had it up in Boston at, uh, I forget the hotel there in the seaport. And, and I left, um, took a few pills, had a few drinks and, and it was a good night. You know, and but my cousins owned a restaurant right near Boston College, the Stockyard. And oh yeah. So I stopped by there to see my 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 cousins that you know they had been they had fall they've been with me, with me my whole journey and and all that stuff. So I stopped by there and had a few more drinks, and then when I left there, I um right across the street from Boston College, Route Nine and and Newton, I sideswiped a van or he swipes sideswiped me i'm not sure the whole story behind it um but i blew out two tires and kept driving and then i got on 128 the wrong way and i got arrested in lexington massachusetts i had pulled off the highway because it was yeah it sparks coming in the window and what should have been a pretty cool night ended up not so cool. You know, I got arrested and, and spent the night in jail up in Lexington. And um, about a week after that, not even a few days, the team called and there was no social media. So we had a head of security, Frank Mendez, and he called and he said, this thing's going to get in the paper. I didn't tell anyone. So... I got off the phone with him. He said, you got to call Coach Belichick on Nantucket and tell him what happened in case he gets questioned about it. And, you know, I was by no means a, a star, but it was going to be a, a decent story for someone. So I, I I think I called him. I don't remember it because I remember I drank heavily. You know, I thought that would give me the courage to call him. You know, but what did happen at that counter that night is is I'm almost positive I called them. But when I got off the phone, like I had a choice and it was, um, you know, turn this thing around, put down the pills, put down the booze, get back in the weight room, deal with the consequences and, and go from there and maybe play a few more years or, you know, keep heading in the direction I was heading. And, and basically that decision was made up six months before when I found, you know, when they, when the opiates had that effect on me, you know, and I gave up football six months after picking up my first pill, six or seven months. And, and it really was the easy decision, you know, and, and, and like I said, at the time, I, I, I didn't think it was going to be that big a deal. Like I didn't know where it could take me. And, um, I found out pretty quick, you know, and, and I got released in the newspapers like 
I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell my friends. I, I, I didn't tell the team. I just never showed up again, you know, and, um, and things progressed pretty quick, you know. So what kind of life and what were you doing in these eight years that you were uh, taking? Nothing. And, and the crazy part is, I, you know, I had money at the time, you know, which I don't know if it's a bad thing, good thing. It's definitely not a good thing, I guess. But at least, I, I mean, you see how people get arrested so many times to try to, you know, feed the habit. For me, I... I um, I had everything delivered, you know, so I went from Percocet to Vicodin to Oxycontin to heroin, quickly to heroin. Um, I was living with someone and it was their friend that introduced me because I couldn't get the Oxy. And, and yeah, I went up to a thousand dollar a day heroin habit pretty quick and I was drinking 24 hours a day and I had everything delivered to my house. You know, I thought my my dealer was my best friend, you know, because I was probably his best customer. And he brought whatever I needed. He brought the alcohol. He brought me a sandwich, you know, my food. And, and for like three years, I didn't leave my bedroom. Like I literally stayed in my bedroom for three years, you know, and um, by 2005, like it's crazy to think when. I started taking the pills. It was like, oh, I just want to feel normal for a half hour, you know. And then you look four years later, I'm 170 pounds. I can't stand up. I can't walk. I haven't left my, left my room in the last three years. And, um, yeah, by 05, I was uh, like 170 pounds. And I ended up in the ICU in Boston for like 10 days, you know. And, um Thank God I struggled when I when I did because with this fentanyl it's it's scary it really is yeah fentanyl today but you you probably would have died yeah you probably would have got some bad stuff somewhere along the way well is, yeah. you know what I is it true like I don't work in the stuff like I go to my meetings and and we do the prevention and but people saying there's really not heroin anymore it's just all fentanyl right. Uh, it's about ninety yeah. percent correct. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, and then you you, and the problem with fentanyl is, if there's a certain level where, and I I know someone who just died of it, and they were knocked four times and they didn't bring them back. Wow. So it's that strong that you can have knockhand and, and before a knockhand would knock you right out of it and you come right to, but uh, this particular person. Never came to. They were in, went into a coma and stayed there until they died. Oh. You know, and this was uh, just three weeks ago. And this is somebody who was a casual user, not even somebody who was heavily addicted. They yeah. they were actually doing cocaine that was that had fentanyl in it, yeah. and 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 they were just out on a trip up in Reno, Nevada. You know, and just Lake Tahoe, just partying. You know, and that's that's what happened. You know. Um, her mother was so in disbelief that she thought she could just fly out there and wake her up. She thought, you know, that couldn't possibly be her daughter because she didn't do those things, you know, and that's what, what where the confusion is today. It's like so many people now die from fentanyl poisoning. I'd say it's 85% of the overdoses of fentanyl. Yeah. So where is the turning point that, that you, you, you're in the, you're in the hospital now, and and did you stop after you got out of the hospital, or did you keep on going? No, no, that was kind of like um, kind of the beginning of my getting to recovery, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I I was in a I was in the hospital, and um, and my 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 family knew nothing about it. You know, it's not like you know, um, there's a lot more resources nowadays. So when so when I was about to get to the, out of the hospital, my brother came in and he's like, you're going to a, a place after this. And, you know, that's the one thing I never did. I, I, I tried not to, if they said you need to go someplace, I just went, you know, I wasn't going to try to sneak away. And, and, you know, I had, thank God, I, I had enough respect for my parents that I'd at least just go. So, so I ended up in this place in Brookline, Mass., 
Um, I think it was called the Brookline House. I don't think it's there anymore. Um, but I ended up being in there for uh, a good month. And, and you know what? The only thing I remember about that is I, I, I didn't sleep for like the first 20 days there. And it's crazy how how, the, the, how powerful the withdrawals are, you know. And um, But the day I got out of that place, um, I came back to North Attleboro. And at the time, I had a girlfriend with two young kids, seven and nine years old, living with me. Um, right when I gave up football, I met this person. And they moved in very quickly. I just think I was like... I don't know how it 100% happened, but I had two kids live with me. Thank God that they came into my life because they're still into my life to this day. And without them, I don't know where I'd be. Um, but they met me right at the beginning of all the kind of madness in my life. And uh, But I remember I came home and they wanted to go to the movies. And I brought them to the movies and um, I immediately went to Providence and got 14 grams of heroin. 50 Percocets, and I got drunk, and I got arrested that night in Attleboro, Massachusetts, uh, going down a uh, one-way street in a snowstorm, and, um, you know, so that was 2005, and and for me, I, I just, I struggled for so long to admit, like, I'm powerless, and that I'm an addict alcoholic, you know, over the next three years, I went to 15 rehabs, and you know, over the eight years, I was charged with five DUIs, and I went to the emergency room eight times by ambulance, and, and I just fought this thing thinking I was different and that I could control it, and I'm stronger than this. And, um, you know, early 2008, I was in a sober house in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and um, and I had a roommate, Adam. And Adam had an older brother, Steve, that was like 15 years in recovery. And um, I don't know, at some point during that, I didn't like Steve. Steve was loud, tattooed, confident, hit scream. He like, I couldn't stomach him. Um, but what I did is I ended up leaving that house. I started to drink in the house. Um, I told the house owner, he tried to get me to keep me there. I just walked out. But I remember leaving that house and thinking, I can't do this. Like, I I thought my life was going to be that cycle. A lot of people get caught up in and you get, you know, you go someplace, you get clean for a little while, you get stay sober for a little while, then relapse. You know, and, and um, but I left that house and I had given Steve my 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 address and my phone number. And I went back and, and I was living in North Attleboro. I had lost the house and... The kids weren't living with me and everyone was kind of done with me at the time. But I went back to that apartment in North Attleboro and I immediately um, I started drinking 24 hours a day. And um, but thank God I gave this guy my address because he was coming by my house three or four times a day just to make sure I was OK. And, and honestly, it went on for like three months. It was really bad, really quick. I didn't go back to the pills. Um, but the hardest thing for me to put down personally was the alcohol. In the end, that was the thing that I liked the most. I put down the pills probably a year earlier. Um, but I never, I, I just kept drinking, you know, because it was so much easier to get, at least back then, you know, liquor stores were everywhere. I liked the effect it had on me. And, um, but he was coming by my apartment like three or four times a day. And um, and he was just like, you ready? And and he knew there's nothing he could have really done, you know, but he just kept showing up, make sure I ate something. And But he came by December 14th because he saw a car there. And uh, when he walked in, my mother and father were in my apartment. And my mother had come over at like nine at night. And my mother was actually in my my room standing over me and I was passed out in bed and my mother was crying and my mother was begging God to take my life. And, um, I don't remember it. This was coming from Steve. Um, you know, and obviously my mother didn't want that, but my mother had reached a point where she didn't want to watch me suffer anymore, you know, and, and I never realized the damage I did until I got sober and I was forced to look at my actions, like to the people around me. 
like over those seven or eight years, I never realized how many times my mother ended up in the hospital because when my health failed, her health failed. You know, when I started drinking a ton, she started to drink a ton because she couldn't cope with it. Like I didn't realize for those seven years, my, my mother and father didn't sleep, you know, and, and I was sleeping. I was passing out. You know, I, I never truly knew the damage that um, addiction does has on the whole family. You know, and um, but December 15, 2008 is my sobriety date. And um, it's always interesting to me because like all the situations I was in over those eight years that I would have thought would would have gotten me sober, you know, whether it was court or, you know, it's like, you know, I cut trees in half and telephone poles in half and just all the things like situations I ended up in that like I I said, I swear if I get out of this, I'll stop. You know, the morning I quit, it was the thing that that followed me my whole life. I had a total mental, emotional breakdown. And I sat on my couch and right down the street from our office here and I uncontrollably cried for about five hours. And um, I tried to get in the church next door. It was locked because I was like, I need to pray. And whatever happened that day, I'm not 100% sure. But I, the one thing I know happened, like, I had struggled with mental health my whole life. Like, I always tell people I went through life on a tightrope. Like, I got by, but I was fortunate nothing major happened in my life. You know what I mean? I didn't have a death in the family or some sickness and and i got by you know and and um you know but that day i hit bottom and um that guy steve walked you know they talk about the gift of desperation i got it that that day looking in the mirror and um you know for 36 years i i tried to like not deal with that emotional side and the things that were really going on inside of me and but what happened is that guy Steve walked in and uh I was 36 and it was the first first time in my life I ever asked another human being for help with any, anything. You know, I I went through I didn't ask like a teacher, a, no one, you know, for help with anything. I tried to do it on my own the whole time because I didn't want to burden other people. I didn't want people to know like really what was going on and it's such a simple thing. You know, the simple, I need help, you know, and, and it's amazing how such a simple thing can completely change your life, you know, because like a lot of people oh, yeah. struggle with addiction, they're, you're ashamed of it. You know what I mean? You don't want people to know, you know, and, uh, and I'm telling you, if you didn't walk in then, I wouldn't have got sober that day. You know what I mean? And and that's the, that's the crazy part of this whole thing or kind of the not crazy, sad, it's, a lot of it's just timing, you know what I mean? When someone's ready, you know, you need someone there, you know? And, and for me, like, if he didn't walk in then, I wouldn't have got sober that day. It's probably a different story. I don't know when I would have got sober, if I ever would have got sober, you know? And, um, and you, that day, did you actually just stop drinking or did you do, you didn't do a 12 step program and you didn't, you wouldn't cold no, turkey well yeah and i did it on my couch so i was living right down the in this apartment and i had no heat i couldn't afford my rent i remember pulling all the blinds because my landlord lived upstairs um but i remember telling steve um and he didn't like this especially with the alcohol i said i want to feel it like i'm not going in a hospital i'm not going to go to another place and be given librium and 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 just kind of go through it i said i want to feel it and he was like i know he didn't believe me at the time you know but i literally sat on the couch and i stared at the floor for 5 days and i cried and i just shook and 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 it, it is scary like the stages to alcohol withdrawal you know um yeah Put down heroin, it was 05. You know, after I went into that facility after the ICU and then I got arrested, I never went back to it, you know, but I just couldn't put down the alcohol. But I sat there and and I know for me, um, it's crazy because one day 
you know, I'd have auditory hallucinations. One day I'd have visual. And every time I detox, it was one day where my legs wouldn't work. Like I couldn't walk. They'd be all shaken. And, uh, but I sat on the couch and, and he visited me and stayed with me and showed up and watched movies with me. And, um, that was kind of the beginning, but the, the best part of that is he's the one that really introduced me to, to the 12 step recovery and, and meetings and AA and fellowship because I had gone to a million before I was on probation the whole time. And, and I had probably been to 150 of them, you know, but, you know, I sat in back and, and I didn't want to get to know people and I didn't want to talk to people and um, I didn't want to be accountable. And when I wanted to leave, I just wanted to be able to walk out and have no one know, you know, and, and, like I said, the right person came into my life at the right time. Like he was someone that wasn't going to take no for an answer. And, and, and that was kind of doing. the journey started, you know, he knew, he knew what he was doing. He, yeah. I hope he's still a good friend of yours. He is. He's got like 36 years now. He helps a million people. Like I'm the, I don't know if I'm a bad sponsee or a good one. Like, I honestly call Steve six times a year. I see him at my Wednesday night meeting. He started a meeting locally. But when I need to call him, I call him. But I don't call him every day. You know, I'm a, That's good. The, the last 14 years, I call him when I need him. But I don't, I'm still not a very social person. Like, it, I'm still, like, left up to me. I'll hide in my bedroom with my dogs. Like, that's. You know, well, I mean? you, you have a wife who's just the opposite. Well, yes, I married. Yes, hundred percent. You married she's going, right. She's going away, and uh, I'm actually a little scared. Not that I'm ever going to use, but she's going away. She asked me to go to a wedding in like someplace in Mexico. I was like, no, like I don't go anyplace warm, low sun. Like I, I just don't like sun, sand, salt water. So, so she's going down there with her sister, but like. I got five dogs and I'm a dog person and and I and interesting to that, I've been a dog person since I was like two or three. Like I can show dogs affection, but not really people as much. Um but she's going away and I'm I'm like uh, I'm like oh, I'm so excited, you know, because the for 10 days I can have all five dogs and the four dogs now in the bed with me. But then I get worried because like I said, I can't let my old behaviors totally creep back in because yeah, I'll go upstairs and she'll call and I'll say, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And I'll just isolate with my dogs, you know, which is not a good thing for someone like me. Well, um, no, it's okay with the dogs. I'm sure. Dogs will never complain and they won't encourage you to do anything bad. No, and it's we had a dog when I and I I a lot of times joke with my parents, I blame all my problems on them because when I was like four, we got a dog. And my father bought a Dalmatian. Bad idea, hyper dog. My father has no patience for dogs, but like I was hooked with this dog. We used to live in Brockton. And I was like four and I'd get out of my room. I'd crawl over the baby gate. I'd go downstairs. I'd get the dog. We had a barn a hundred feet behind the house. I'd go out in the barn with the dog and go to sleep. Like if the dog, I almost drowned in a in a swamp because I followed the dog. Like I was, we were inseparable. And I, and I, at age like seven, um, I went to my friend's house. And when I came home, the dog was gone. And I remember how much it crushed me, but my father was going to kill the dog because the thing was ruining everything. Um, but my, I've always had a, a, a very close connection with animals. And um, yeah, so now That's we got good. four dogs. And <clears throat> so now your story is very compelling. So now you, you got, you go out and talk to kids at high schools and various other places. And yeah. But, <clears throat> it's, um, and how do you give them this advice? Well, with I I waited to do it. Like my wife, very what's our new our new word is strongly encouraged, because for a long time, like I say, forced. Like it's I've done probably three three four hundred schools. It's it it's never gotten easier for me. 
being in front of people is like, like even this, like the Zoom stuff, like I won't, my wife can't FaceTime in the car. It gives me severe anxiety. Um, probably the first two or three years, I just watched her. You know, we met at her first parent night. I was five weeks sober. We kind of met. So my sponsor um, grew up with Kathy. They went to the same high school. They weren't close. Um, but when I was five weeks sober, I, me I remember I spent my first Christmas at his house, my first New Year's. And, you know, my family didn't want me around at the time. And, and he said, listen, you're going up to your high school, North Attleboro High School. This lady's talking. She lost her daughter. I want you to see, like, you know, what alcohol could do to a family. So I went to it and I sat in the back and she at the time was it was her first parent night. It was kind of a mess and blubbering. And um, but it's interesting because I remember I sat in the back row and how much it put life into perspective for me, you know, because at the time I felt like and a lot of a lot of us feel this way when you first go to get sober. Like I thought I had dug a hole I couldn't get out of. You know, the IRS was telling me I owed them like three quarters of a million of dollars, like seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And I had probation and I had all this stuff going on. But I remember sitting there and when I walked down, like my life could be worse. You know, it could be, you know, I, it put a new perspective on life for me, you know. But I remember walking out. We didn't we met, but we didn't really um, start talking then. Yeah, that was a few months later. Um, but we met a little later on and started walking, talking, and 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 eventually got married. But probably for about three years, I just went and supported her, you know. And and I was like, no, I at first it was like I'm too early on to get up. I don't feel I feel like it's too early for me. But I was just trying to relay it because of my severe anxiety, especially socially. Like I had always had like severe so in speaking in front of people. No. And, um, but I saw the good it was doing, you know, and I, I knew I had a story, you know, in my head, I was like, why don't you have the kid in that does everything right? You know, like why have me, you know, but I knew my story had the little catch for the Patriots and kids would listen, you know, so, so, her and another guy kind of got me up there and, and the rest has been history. You know, if it wasn't for the kids, I wouldn't do it. Like I just, like I enjoy trying to help the kids. I enjoy the interaction, but like I said, I've done it 300 times and, and I know people that love it up in front of people love it. Like they eat it. No, I, I, I hide. So right before we talk, my wife sits at the front door she comments on every kid, which a guy couldn't do. Like, she's like, nice hair, nice pants. Like, it'd be creepy if I did that. But she comments on everyone. And um, I hide either backstage or I go to the same spot I've been going to since eighth grade at any sort of function, the bathroom. I sit in the stall. That's always been my place when I need to calm down because no one's going to come in. No one's going to talk to me. It can just be me for a little while. So... Every time, five minutes before, I disappear. And usually the principal starts to freak out. Is he going to show up? And then, like, I, I, logistically, I, I've figured it out. But but then I come out, you know. But it, it, it's it, I thought by now it would just be second nature. I thought I'd be standing up there commanding the room like I'm the man. Nope, I'm me, you know. And, and this is never, I've come so far through a lot of work. But this is always going to be me. I'm never going to be comfortable in front of people. And, 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 and I do enjoy it, though, you know, and I do enjoy the feedback. And if it wasn't important to me, you know, and, it's, you know, and, and for her, I wouldn't do it, you know. Um, yeah. So what, what is the we're just about out of time. So what is the <clears throat> what is that message that you that you, you know, you're trying to get out? You know, what is the main message, I mean, that you're, that you're trying to get across to these kids? Yeah, you know, with me, it's, um, I think it's changed over time, the more I've kind of got to know myself, 
you know, but obviously talking to the kids, like, especially with the dangerous with the fentanyl and, and, and the binge drinking and the vaping, like, and all that stuff, you know, we want, at least for me, I just want the thought in the head because most of these kids are still going to try stuff. You know, most of the kids are going to put in situations where they're surrounded by it and they're going to have a choice. And when we talk, we don't put up statistics. Um, we don't have a PowerPoint. Like mine's never the same ever. It's like, I started a different spot because she needs 40 minutes. Sometimes I have 20, 30, 40, 50, you know? So every time I do it, it's it, it's different. But like for me, mine's changed over the years because yeah, of course we don't want the kids to use drugs and binge drink and we want them to watch out for each other. And we talk all, about all that, but like with mine, the my most important thing is mental health. Like that's the thing that took me out. And I think that's the thing that takes a lot of people. Yeah, some kids just get caught up or try it once, but like, Majority of people I know, you know, that struggle with addiction, it was self-worth, the self-esteem and anxiety and depression and, and or some sort of, like I said earlier, trauma. So, like, I just want the kids to know, like, there's different avenues and, and there's, you know, different ways you can get help for yourself and, and um, you need to talk to people. So if you have somebody who's in a situation, don't give up on them. Don't That's the moral up. of that story. Is once you give up, that's the end. And we, we don't want to have that happen. So no. and look at the good thing that's come out of this. And uh, again, thanks a lot, Chris. And same no, same you. to you, Kathy, for monitoring. All right? Just wait a minute. Well, have a good day. Thank you, buddy.